Good morning. How's everybody today? We had a bit of a spill on the, the way out. Can you hear me? Check, check. Working now? Good morning. Uh, now, if any adult gets up and cries like that leaving, we're all going to laugh at you. Uh, if you're new with us today, for several weeks we've been walking through a series of uh, topics where essentially we're trying to take a common thought that people have and then analyze it in light of what the Bible tells us. We've tried to select perhaps the most common ideas that sometimes get thought of as spiritually correct and then say, what does God actually say about them? So we've been through a whole bunch of those. We only have a few left. So if you're new with us, that's where we've been. Uh, Today we're going to look at a topic that um, I think is probably the most foundational of of all the ones that we will have looked at in total for the whole series. Everything really builds off of this one. It might have made sense to start with it, uh, but we didn't, so glad you're here today nonetheless. There are some some talks that are are easy. They're just kind of spoon-fed. Here's a simple truth. Take this, eat it, digest it, live on it, and it just feels good. I think there's other times there's, there's a talk that's confrontive. It really hits us square between the eyes and it hurts and it convicts us of something that needs to be changed in how we're living. Maybe last week uh, the message Hansley gave was that way. Other times there's things that are, that are simply motivating. They're, they're truths that are easy to see and they're inspiring and we naturally gravitate towards following them. And I think there's other times that there's, there's a talk given that's, that's hard to digest. It's, it's dense. It's like fruitcake. Uh, everybody eats it and you're not sure why. Just tradition. It's, it's tough to swallow. You've got to chew it a really long time. You might have to leave and still think about it before you become convinced of its truthfulness. Uh, that's today. Now, I, what I'm going to try to do is take the underlying assumption that our society is built on and tell you it's garbage. And the way you're going to receive that will not probably be, yeah, I completely agree with you. But I hope what you'll do is not throw the baby out with the bathwater and take time to really think about what we're going to look at today and see if you can figure out how much you've been impacted by it and how different it is than the way the world actually works. So that's my, my premise. Um, I don't expect this big, enormous response, uh, but I hope that you'll at least think about what we're going to think about today. Uh, there are many benefits to living at this, in this particular society at this particular moment in time. So if, if we zoom out and we think about living in the United States in the year 2014, what are some benefits that come from living in this society? Let me give you just four quick ones. Um, one is that we live in a country that has remarkable opportunity. Look around you. There are people here from all over the place. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because people come here because there's opportunity here that doesn't exist elsewhere. So that's a great privilege and a great opportunity that we have as a society is to be genuinely multicultural because people come for the opportunities that are available to us here. 
And, and broadly speaking, pretty much anything that you set your sights on that you would like to, to become, you can seek after that. Now, you may hit some obstacle somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, but there is no class system in the U.S. that would keep you from some kind of goal that you've set. So lots of societies don't work that way. So there's a good reason to be here at this moment in time. Another reason it's a good uh, time to live here is that we have unbelievably wonderful health care. Exactly. We, we live in a place where, generally speaking, again, now there's, there's exceptions to this, if there's something wrong with you physically, you can get the kind of care you need in order to address it. That is not true in most of the world. I have traveled in literally dozens of countries on most continents, and I've seen with my own eyes people who can... We can go to the pharmacy, get a pill, take it for two weeks, and be fine, and there's people dying of things like diarrhea. Do you realize how silly that is? And yet the vast majority of the, of the nation can get the care they need, and the vast majority of countries around the world, you really can't. There's not the access to the resources that we have. So you may be here today and not feel good, but chances are you're being better cared for than you would somewhere else. Another benefit to living here is that we have endless knowledge literally at our fingertips. There has never been a point in human history where the kind of knowledge is pooled like is pooled today. It's incredible what we can learn. My kids have this term, Google it, at six and nine that did not exist when I was six and nine. So uh, Micah, a few months ago, we have a, uh, a gecko, and uh, Micah decided it would be cool if I danced with the gecko and threw him up in the air and caught him. So as he's dancing, he's throwing the gecko up in the air, up in the air, up in the air. You know what a gecko is, right? Okay. So... We noticed that its tail started getting more and more wobbly. And then one of the times Micah threw it up, the tail fell off. So nothing smashed, nothing. So Micah's freaking out because his gecko's tail is gone. And and Abby says, well, let's just Google it. So she goes to the computer and finds out that geckos, when they're exceedingly stressed, drop their tails. And they'll grow back. So... This is knowledge that I would not have had at six or nine, right? There's, there's, that's a silly example, but anything you want to know about, all you got to do is go to your computer. Now, that doesn't speak to the truthfulness of that information, but it's out there. And that doesn't count just the society that we live in, extremely educated society. Walk across the street, you can get a world-class education. A fourth benefit to living in this society at this moment in time is that you're generally safe. Now, there's some risk, but but none of us are really concerned that between this room and our car, you, you might get shot. And that's not true everywhere. So there's lots of benefits to living here now. But living here now also has some unique drawbacks. There's some challenges to it that we may not recognize. And if we're not careful, these challenges or issues can turn into terminal thinking. They can turn into fatal flaws. 
And what I'd like to point to today is just one fatal flaw that our society has become built around. And here it is. You have your truth and I have mine. Or what's right for you is not necessarily what's right for me. Or you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. And both of us are right. The vast majority of people that have ever lived have not believed that. And yet the majority of us in this room today, that is maybe without realizing it, the core assumption that you have in life itself. And if mentally you're saying to me, no, 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 I don't think that, I would still imagine it's impacted you more than you realize. Now before I go further, let me clarify something. Depending on the topic, that statement is true. You have your truth, I have mine. In some arenas, that is actually factually correct. So let's say three of you go to lunch afterwards and you go for pizza. And one of you says, let's get pepperoni. Pepperoni is the best. I love pepperoni. Somebody else says, pepperoni stinks. I want sausage. Sausage is the best. Somebody else says, I shouldn't have even come with you guys. Pizza is disgusting. Which one of you is correct? It's personal preference, right? There is no right and wrong. So person A, for them, the truth is they like pepperoni, so it is the best. Person B, sausage, it is the best. Person C, and I'm with you, pizza's for like lock-ins at 7th and 8th grade, and then the rest of you need to grow up. It's disgusting. Sorry, see? (laughs) So, you have your truth, I have mine. When it comes to pizza, you're exactly right. Intuitively, we understand that we're talking about preference. But what about things bigger than that? What about things far more important than pizza? Taste in food or sports teams or favorite vacation spots, TV shows, all of those things should be thought of in the realm of personal preference and opinion. There is no right or wrong answer. It's just a matter of choice. But the odd thing is, we've taken that mindset and relegated almost everything to it. And that's where it begins to fall apart. You have your truth and I have mine has become the baseline narrative of our entire culture. Now, I wish we had the time that I could track for you how that's happened. We don't, but it's very clear and it's, it's fascinating. It started with art in Europe, then it became part of the educational system in Europe, then it drifted over here. It's largely dead here now, but it's very strong here. So that's a 30-second version. Sometime we'll take the time to track through it. It is fascinating how that became the dominant cultural narrative. But that's not what we have time for today. Instead, I just want to ask you to consider the validity of that position. You have your truth, I have mine. Beyond pizza, does that really make sense? Is it really the way you want to look at life? Is it helpful? Is it accurate? Does it stand against rigorous thought? Now, the cat's out of the bag. My answer is going to be no, but 
let me try and help you see why your answer should be no. Is that okay? Yes? All right. Now, for the majority of us, I think we really believe that we believe you have your truth and I have mine. But when push comes to shove, I think you don't actually believe it. Let me give you one example to try and illustrate that. So back to the pizza, okay? So you leave here in 35 minutes and you go north on Mill and you're headed to one of the pizza places in downtown Mill. You have a green light, you get to university, you're crossing university, somebody going the other direction, somebody, you're going north on Mill, somebody going the other direction on university, runs a red light, smashes into your car, boom! Airbags, smoke, blood, all the awesomeness that comes with an accident. And in a moment of genuine kindness and Christian charity, you get out of the car screaming, What'd you do that for? And the other person gets out of their car and says, Well, you have your truth and I have mine. Green means go for you and red means go for me. What are you going to think about that? Not anything you should repeat in this room. (laughs) Right? It would strike you as complete, utter, ridiculous. You would not believe it for a second. Everybody knows green means go and red means stop. And yellow means... So you're not going to be satisfied with the answer of you have your truth and I have mine if it's something that really impacts your life. So why when it comes to spiritual truths do we somehow instantly think that that's the realm we have to talk in? You have your truth, I have mine. There is no objective evidence that moves religion into the realm of personal opinion. In fact, there's a whole lot more that would say it doesn't belong there. But that's where we've put it. Most spiritual truth claims are claims of absolutes. But we've relegated them to the matters of personal choice. And that causes us to realize the silliness behind our thinking. Now, why do we think that way? How is it that we've come about looking at truth in that way? Well, turn with me to John 18. It's going to take us a minute. Before we get there, I want to set it up for you. But look at John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back at the coffee bar on the left-hand side. John 18. Now, while you're turning there, let me see if I can frame this discussion for you in this way. I think one of the dominant reasons we tend to think this way today is because of our view of tolerance. Tolerance is uh, the new norm. It is the most loving way you can possibly live. Correct? But our understanding of what tolerance is has shifted. To be tolerant used to mean that as a society we would allow, permit, recognize, and respect other people and their perspectives. It meant that we should have the ability to treat one another with respect as fellow human beings 
without necessarily agreeing with each other. So I could tolerate you and you could tolerate me. We could be in some kind of relationship with each other, but that didn't mean we both had to come to the same conclusions. And that's okay. That's what, tolerate, that's what toleration used to mean. One author, Edwin uh, Landsrick, put it like this. Toleration is the enduring of something disagreeable. It's not the indifference towards things that don't matter, and it's not a broad-mindedness that celebrates the indifferences. It involves a decision to forego using powers of coercion. It's quite compatible with trying to change another's opinion as long as one relies on rational persuasion and emotional appeals rather than subtle brainwashing and threats. You understand? That's what being tolerant of each other used to mean, is that we have the ability to disagree, but we can do so in a civil, loving, kind way. Tolerance no longer means that. We use the same word, but we mean something completely different. Don Carson, who I think has written the most helpful book on this, calls that old tolerance. New tolerance, by contrast, means this. When we call each other to be tolerant of other ideas, we call each other to not judge, to view everyone's version of truth as truthful for them. We've shifted from the accepting the existence of different views to the acceptance of those views. In other words, to be kind and warm and loving and honest and good, to be fair, then we must not only acknowledge that other opinions exist, we must also view those opinions as equally valid as our own. All beliefs and claims have equal validity. You have your truth and I have mine. Have you ever said or heard somebody say something like this? I'm glad that's working for you, that, that you found the truth. Here's what's working for me, and I'm thankful I found it too. Have you heard that? More than likely, you've heard it today. You just might not have recognized that that's what people were saying. This book, uh, The Intolerance of Tolerance, does an outstanding job of showing that the dominant cultural expression of truth that we have is actually very anti-Christian. It's tolerant of everything except those that claim that that's not what tolerance and truth is. So what happens is we, we, um, we go to school, for example. Here's a 90-second version of, of what happened to me. I grew up in a home where the Bible was believed in, taught, lived out well. I became a Christian at a young age. I am a natural, bent, uh, skeptic, and, and a poker into things, anti-authoritarian kind of person. So I always kind of had some doubts. I went to school as a freshman, became a speech major, gave a, uh, a talk, this was almost 20 years ago, a talk on how sex on the computer was going to impact sex in the bed. Now, this was 20 years ago. And I, I didn't know what I was talking about, uh, had no experience in the matter, and it was embraced by the school. Uh, I went from a really obscure nobody that barely passed high school to being thrust kind of in the limelight in the program and then decided I'm going to use this degree as a way to publicly talk about my faith. So I began doing that and I just got utterly destroyed, shredded. 
All these people began saying things to me about Christianity that I never heard before and I had no idea how to answer them. And I felt academically behind and I was young in my faith and I had never heard things like, well, none of the manuscripts in your Bible match. So every page of your Bible has something on it that doesn't match another page. My church never told me that. So I I had no idea that there were good answers to the kinds of things I heard. And my, my, my professors would say things like, well, you can't prove the Bible is truth by using the Bible. That's just circular argument. I had no filter through which to understand this person is presuppositionally against the Bible and I am presuppositionally for it. How do we look at evidence and come to good conclusions together? So I became a train wreck throughout college to the point I'm not even sure I believe this stuff anymore. So I went to seminary to try to fix it and it made it worse. So if I had read something like this, it would have breathed life into my soul. So what I'd like to do is give one away to someone who is in the same camp. Come on up. I don't know your name. We've met. Would you remind me? Brittany. Brittany. Give Brittany a hand as she's coming to read. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we don't do this much, and I get no money kickback, okay? Uh, I believe that book is so important that we've bought... 10 more of them. They're at the coffee bar. They're $10. If there was a way for me to make that required reading, I would do it. If there was a way to hand that to every college student before you walk on the campus, I would do it. It's not an easy read. It's actually a pretty difficult book, but it helps us understand what's happening. It's at the coffee bar. Pick it up. So in some ways, this view of truth that we're talking about isn't new. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Now, here's the setting. Jesus, before he's crucified, has been uh, put on trial by the Jews. They've decided we ought to kill this guy, but they don't have the authority through which to do it. So before Jesus can be uh, condemned to death, he has to stand before the Roman rulers of the time. They're the only ones who could execute Jesus. So Jesus is going to stand before a guy named Pilate. And here's their conversation. Verse 33 of Luke of John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Judas, Jesus answered, Do you say that of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered me over to you. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now this is beyond our topic for today, but just a really brief aside. Jesus here is claiming to be the king over all. And we've talked about that a lot around here. But he wasn't asserting his place over Jerusalem or over Rome. He was asserting his place over all. His kingdom is much bigger than a specific geographical locale. Jesus is claiming to be king over a spiritual kingdom made up of all who hear him, know him, love him, follow him. If you want to be a part of that kingdom, you can't. 
It doesn't matter what nation you're from or how good or bad you've been in your past. All it takes is coming to Jesus and saying, I acknowledge that you're in charge and I'm not. And that I've attempted to live life my own way. And that's been wrong. And I want to follow you as my king. So Jesus is saying, that kingdom will go on forever. I'm that king. Now watch Pilate's response closely. Verse 37. Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? When you try to talk to people about your faith, what do they say? They say in some way or another, what is truth? You have your truth. I have my truth. It's not, not anything new. Now, Jesus first put it negatively. My kingdom's not of this world. But then he put it positively. I came to bear witness to the truth that I'm king, that there's life, that you can find it in me, that all of life is to be lived with me and for me and through me that I'm to be obeyed and followed and enjoyed and worshipped. And Pilate got that. He understood that. So he says, what is truth? Do you hear the cynicism in that? In our way of thinking, Pilate comes off looking superior and morally neutral. It, It seems wiser to say, well, there's not truth. There's many, 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 many truths. That strikes us as more loving and kind and tolerant. But Pilate was anything but a neutral third party. You see, Jesus' claim to be king was an affront to Pilate's desire to be king over his own life. If you read the Gospel of John from the start to finish, what you see is that John in particular makes the claim that having faith in the truth isn't just mentally agreeing with something. Instead, it's putting utter trust in Jesus and living life for him with integrity. And Pilate is just tossing that aside. When he says, what is truth? He's not some innocent third party. He's really saying, no, Jesus, I am king. You're not. Instead of truly investigating what Jesus had to say. Do you hear the difference? Friends, you will never meet someone, nor are you someone, who is above culture, who is above personal experience, who is above having your own perspective. We all come to everything with that. The question is, which of our personal preferences and desires analyzed in light of something bigger than us turns out to be most truthful? That's what we're trying to help people come to not our version of reality. So please, 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 please get the book, get some help in understanding that. New tolerance demands that we be tolerant of everything except old tolerance. And it's, it's morally and intellectually bankrupt because of it. But Christians haven't been exposed to that, so we tend to cower down in the corner. 
or we do really obnoxious, unhelpful things. Last weekend, I was driving up to see my brother in Prescott, and I drove past a car that, you know, like the little label makers that that people make in the office to to label a a drawer? This, This has files, okay, little white. I saw a car that had taken a label, one of those season labels about this thick, maybe that long, and it said, Jesus is king, turn or burn, and had plastered that on the back of their car. Now, is that true? Yes. Is that helpful? Um, Maybe to some person. Maybe, but probably not. I imagine the person that put that on their car has never said that to anybody. They're too scared to sit down and get in a relationship with someone and have a dialogue about that. So they plaster it on the back of their car. It's ridiculous. I'm not advocating meanness, but I am advocating we can have conversations in which we say to somebody, look, you're telling me that there is no truth, that all truth is relative. In that very claim to truth, you are making an absolute truthful claim. So it doesn't even hold water. It's okay to have dialogue about that kind of thing. Jesus' claim is that he is the truth. And therefore, truth is more than personal, subjective, religious preference. We've come to put spiritual things in the pile of personal opinion at at best and empty superstition at worst. Even if you're here today and you're a Christian, more than likely what you think is that faith is just a personal subjective choice and nothing more. It doesn't consist of the stuff of right and wrong, truth and error, correct and incorrect. Uh, Years ago, a book called The Da Vinci Code came out. It was actually extremely well written. Later was a movie that is probably what more of us were exposed to. There's a a scene in the movie or a scene in the book where Sophie says, you told me that the New Testament is based on fabrication. And Langdon, the, the hero of the story, replies back, Sophie, every faith in the world is based on fabrication. That's the definition of faith. Acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. That is the way we think of faith today. That's the way we think of what God calls us to. And it's total garbage. When the Bible uses the word faith and truth, that's not at all what it's calling you to. That's not at all what it's asking you for. According to Scripture, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's not wishful thinking. If you could read your Bible in Greek, then over and over and over again, here's a word that you would come up with. It means truth, aletheia. It's in there time and time and time and time and time again. And at its most basic definition, that word means reality. Reality laid before our very eyes. Faith is not based in wishful thinking, 
but in a reasoned, carefully concluded understanding of what has taken place. Now, if you forget everything else I say today, please hear this. According to this book, for faith to be genuine, for, for you to place trust in truth, then its object must be trustworthy. Let me say it again. For faith to be genuine and reliable, its object must be trustworthy. So contrary to popular belief, the Bible doesn't urge you to faith without evidence. It doesn't urge you to just try harder and maybe it'll turn out to be true. It doesn't urge you to just take it because somebody said it. If somebody tries to convince you of spiritual truth but has nothing to point to as a reason for that truth, then run. They're probably wanting you to sip Kool-Aid. Faith without evidence isn't faith. It's just positive thinking or superstition or wishful thinking or puppies and double rainbows. It isn't really faith. For faith to be genuine and reliable, its object must be trustworthy. A little later in the book we were just reading, John said this, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wrote out the gospel to be evidenced for a reason to have faith. John didn't say, well, just trust in some higher power. It'll work out. Or just try harder to believe. Or just take what your parents told you. John said, here's the facts. Jesus did this and this and this and this. Now, what are you going to do with that? Because that proves who Jesus claims to be. Jesus didn't say, just believe. Just take a blind leap of faith. Instead, believe in the truth. Now, in Christianity, truth is bound up in history. It's bound up in the real stuff of time, event, and place. Not every religion is that way. It's not relegated to the stuff of personal preference and wishful thinking. Now, I don't have time to do this today. I'll, I'll blog about it tomorrow. But between now and then, if you want to get ahead, read Psalm 19. What you'll find in Psalm 19 is, which we read portions of earlier on the screens. Psalm 19 says, God has revealed himself in what he's made. But even more so, and even more importantly, God has revealed himself in his word. So check that out. I think it will be helpful to you. But for our other scripture for today, real quick, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll end by talking about this passage. God's stake on us is not. All religions are basically the same, just believe one of them. It's not. There's really no way to know. So just pick one at your own preference and go for it. It's not, you can't really be sure, but to be safe, you might as well go with Christianity. It's not even, 
there's no way to know what truth is. So if you're generally a good person and you believe in something, that's good enough. It's not, you have your truth, I have my truth, and if we both have some truth, then that's good enough. Do you recognize that, that nearly everyone you interact with every day, that is the worldview they're coming from? Are you aware of that? That I can say, I believe this, and that's just fine with someone. As long as they can believe that, and that's just fine with them. And love is patting each other on the back. Again, if we're talking about pizza, great. But if we're talking about matters of life and death, maybe it would behoove us to think through that a little more carefully. Because if you say, Jesus is not God and did not die for sin, and I say, Jesus is God and did die for sin, it is impossible that we'd both be right. Impossible. And so what churches and mosques ought to do is not say, well, we both can be right. And we both have to be right in order to live in a functioning society where both Christians and Muslims exist. That's just not true. I can be very good friends with a Muslim and say, I think you're dead wrong. And I want to urge you to reconsider. And here's my evidence for that. I can tolerate the person and love the person and care for the person and still say, friend, the evidence is not in your favor. It is an extremely unloving thing for me to do and not do that. Christianity's claim is... Not. Just believe. How we've ever come to think that that's what faith is, is beyond me. Christianity's claim is, here are the events and the persons in history. Look at them. If this stuff didn't happen, run away. If it did, then you better get on your knees and respond. You have every right not to. That is your choice. I'm not going to coerce you to follow Christ. But nonetheless, here's the evidence. Watch the way Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 1. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in Zane. Now, what is what what he gave them? He didn't give them abstract, fuzzy thoughts about how to be moral. He gave them raw events. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelfth. He's going to continue talking about what else happened. Now jump down to 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? 
If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He didn't raise if, the, if they are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those of you who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Is there any hint in that of just believe, just have faith, just trust? You have your truth, I have mine. It's not there. That is not the claim of Christianity. The claim of Christianity is in space, time, history, Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And if he didn't, you are wasting your time being here today. There's a lot better ways you could spend your time. There's a lot better speakers you could go hear. If it didn't happen, you're a fool. But if it happened, then there is a claim on your soul that you must respond to. You have your truth, I have mine. That's true when you leave here today to go to lunch. But please... Please reconsider if that's the posture you want to have when it comes to your eternity. Let's pray. God, I think our only hope of coming out of this lie is by you through the Holy Spirit supernaturally enabling us to see the folly all around us. And God, every culture has, has dominant underlying thoughts, some of which are true, some of which aren't. It just so happens to be that at this moment in time, we, this is ours. I think if Pilate was here today and he said, what is truth? Then we would just say, well, Pilate, you have your truth and I have my truth and we all have truth. And then we'd walk out arm in arm, smiling and feeling happy about each other when we're slowly sipping the poison of death. Because your claim is there is one truth. Please let us feel that weight. And if we're in this room and we're not yet decided about what we think about your claim, then God help us to to grab somebody around us and to say, I need help. Would you help me investigate the evidence for the claims of Christ? We pray in that process that you would either reveal that it's truthful or that it's not. And then may we live in light of truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.